0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now.
1: Guys, it was April 8th, April 8th 1966. The popular magazine called Time, Time Magazine, it ran a cover of this title is god dead is god dead now again back in 1966 everybody was i mean that was like the magazine to have it was the it was the um, where you got your information and i mean and, and again like it, we didn't have the internet back then and everything so time ran is god dead now the premise of the story was simply to ask this in a world of evolution because that was was starting to emerge in a word, in a world of birth control in a in a world of believe it or not, the rise of divorce in the country at that time. You go, Ben. Divorce is rampant today. Yeah, but in 1966, you didn't divorce, but it began to rise. They they posed this question. They said, in 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 a world as this, they they said, had the God of 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 age survived the new world? Is God dead? Now looking deeper into that article, you know, you go. Ben, do you have that? No, I looked it up on the internet, so I'm not that old, okay? But here, here's the thing. Looking deeper into that article, we discovered that it's much more about us than it was about God. In that, I guess, turbulent decade, you could say, things were only going to get worse and worse and worse. And it was getting so worse that it actually begged the question, is God dead? Well, the answer to that is a resounding No. You know that, right? But the Bible does talk about the death of God, the death of God. Listen to the way uh, Martin Dehan says this, and he writes, and I quote, The God of the Bible was so deeply moved by the harm people do to one another that he actually died because of it. At a moment in time, the eternal God closed his eyes, and stop breathing. Under the weight of wrongs that had hurt those who were dear to him, his body felt limp and lifeless. At that moment, God was dead. Not just the perception of others, but in real time and in an actual place." End quote. See, this morning, church, we're going to look at this monumental moment in time, the time that we just talked about. You go, what time was that? Well, here's what I want you to see, that my Jesus, that my Jesus was willing to walk up Mount Calvary and lay down his life for ours. That moment, you go, what? You see, that was the day that God died. That was the day that God died. Now, before we get into our text, may I remind you what we've learned so far. You go, you're going to go back all the way? No, no, no. See, chapter 19 opens up with, think about this, guys, with Pilate, Pontius Pilate, scourging Jesus. Or at least he he gave the Romans the order to scourge him. Listen, he had pronounced him, you guys know this, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. But in order to appease an angry crowd, an angry mob, he says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to calm them down. What did he do? He took my Jesus, and you guys remember, he stripped him of his clothing, he put him, he tied him to a pole, he took a cat of nine tails, and he ripped the flesh off my Jesus to where there was nothing but blood and blood muscle, and nerves, and shredded flesh. And you would think that would be enough, right? That's what Pilate does. He he beat him, he beat him, he beat him. He whipped him in the front as well as the back. And that's how chapter 19 opens up. And here's what we learned thus far in our studies in the past, that Jesus did it for us. Can I get an amen? You see, it was the crushing of my Jesus for our sins, and that's the one thing we need to take home today. You see, it was the olive press altogether. They had to crush the olive to get the olive oil, and that's exactly what God was doing to his son. He was crushing his son. Now, Jesus is standing, can you imagine, outside the wall, he's got a crown of thorns on his head. His beard is pulled out. He's been punched. He's been, he's been spat on. And his body is probably now in shock. And it's probably swelling. And he's standing in front of Pilate. And you go, what was the scenario? Well, look at it in verse 13 with me. It says, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place which is called the pavement but in hebrew gabatha okay so he had to bring him out you guys see that he had to bring him out of somewhere he was in the Antonio Fortress. He wasn't in Herod's palace. He brought them out because, because the Jews couldn't go in or else be defiled on the Passover. And so he brings them out and there he is. They had a robe that was supposed to be purple, but I bet it was soaked in blood. It was blood red and there he is. And there's your Jesus standing right there. And that's exactly what he says. And that was the preparation day, the Bible says, of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour. Everybody say sixth hour. Okay, let's say it again like you mean it. Okay, let's try one more time. Okay, why do you say that, Ben? Because I want you, everybody file sixth hour. The sixth hour, file it in your head because that's going to be important here right at the end of our study. You're going to go, okay, I get it. Sixth hour, right? Now let's read it again. I'm going to read it again so you guys get it. It was about the preparation day of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Now, we knew that Pilate meant that mocking. We knew that Pilate meant that sarcastic. We knew that he really didn't believe that was the king, but he wanted to appease the crowd. And you would think they would look at him as he sat there unrecognizable. And they go, he's no king. Look at him. He's just a man that has been beaten to almost nothing. But that's not what happened. Pilate says, behold, the man. And here's what they said in verse 15. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest looked at him and said, we have no king but Caesar. Notice with me, guys, you can just listen up. Luke's account, Luke 23, the same account, but Luke writes it a little bit different. It says this, that the crowd, it says in verse 23 of Luke 23, but they were insistent demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. Again, your attention, please. There's my Jesus. He's standing there. He's got a crown of thorns. There's blood. It's red all over, beard pulled out, ribbons for flesh. And they were insistent and demanding with a loud voice that he be crucified. And so the voices of these men and these chief priests prevailed. I wonder, did they even know what they were saying? Were they just going along with the crowd? What, what are we, why are we saying Cru- crucify him? Why are we saying this? Well, he claimed to be God. Oh, okay. And they just went along and they didn't know the case. But nonetheless, it says that their voices were more persistent, guys. Could you imagine? And so Pilate gave the sentence, Luke says, that he should be as they requested. And they released to them the one they requested. Who was that? Barabbas. Barabbas. And here's what blows my mind. You have Barabbas, right? He says, okay. Okay, I can release one. Here's Jesus. What did he do? He claimed to be God, but he healed people. He fed people. He was nice to his mother-in-law, or Peter's mother-in-law. But nonetheless, he was, there you go. And, and here's Jesus. And then they want to kill him. But, but, but notice Barabbas. They let Barabbas go. But knew, notice what Barabbas was. He says he was, re- he was in prison for rebellion and murder. You're going to let the murderer go. And they delivered Jesus to their will. Now, they led him away and they laid hold of a man, a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, who came, who was coming from the country. And they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. That's what Luke says. Luke says that as Passover began to fill. Now, you need to understand in your mind, okay, if you go to Israel today and you go to Jerusalem, there are a million people who live in Jerusalem. There are a million people. In Passover right now, there's about a million people coming in from all over. And as this is going on, about the which hour? Sixth hour, right? Simon comes in. Simon, you need to help Jesus carry the cross. Now, you guys remember, it wasn't a T-shaped cross because there's no way a, a, a weakened Jesus could carry that cross, he couldn't carry a 300-pound cross. It would be the top, just the top beam. It would be, what, about 100 pounds, but he still couldn't carry it. Why? Because they beat him 39 lashes across. He's sitting there for our sake, and Simon comes in, and that's the account, right? Now they're going to take him where? Well, we know that this is going to be the day that God dies because John reminds us that he's fully God and fully man, and he's going to die, listen to this, an excruciating death As payment for our sins. Can I ask you a question? Aren't you glad this morning that the payment for our sins has been paid by Jesus? Aren't you glad? You see, we go, he died for our sins, but he died for our sins. All of them. I'm just like, this blows me away. I am glad. And here's why. Here's why. When it comes to my sins, paid in full. You see, Jesus isn't making payments on my sins. He's not looking at me and he's going, hey, listen, if you're just good this week, maybe I'll make the payment. But if you're going to be a spoiled, rotten brat, I may hold off on making that payment. It was paid in full. How many of you are glad that your payments, your sins were paid for by Jesus? So this morning, we're going to take a journey with Jesus to Golgotha. Look at verse 16. You go, Ben, we covered verse 16 and 17. Yeah, we're going to use it as a run and go. John chapter 19, 16 and 17 says, Then he delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And bearing his cross, he went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Okay? So all John says, all he says is this. They delivered him to be crucified. The reason why is, again, he's going to give us just a snapshot, okay? He doesn't want to spend a whole lot of time on crucifixion because he knows first century Jews, first century Christians, would know all about crucifixion because the Romans crucified 30 people a day. And so when John says they were crucified, he goes, yeah, crucified, we know that, the Romans. And so he goes there and he says, but they led him out to a place, notice, a place... Where? That's called the skull, a place in Hebrew called Golgotha. Now, last week, if you weren't here last week, we discovered the the Via Della Rosa, the the traditional path they say that Jesus took. And it means in Latin, in the way of suffering or the way of pain. And we learned that God had actually given them a preview in Genesis 22. Do you guys remember what happened in Genesis 22? Abraham, right, takes Isaac. Isaac, take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. So there goes Abraham and Isaac's about a three-day journey. And then all of a sudden, Abraham lays the wood and makes Isaac carry it up to the place of sacrifice. It was a beautiful picture of what Jesus was about to go through. The only difference is, he gets up there and he says, Okay, my father, yes, sir, yes, son. He says, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see your knife. But where's the sacrifice? He says, my son, God will provide the sac- for himself the sacrifice. And he ties Isaac up in the wood and he takes the knife, bam, bam, bam. And God says, stop, Abraham, stop, stop. See, God stepped in at that moment. God stepped in at that moment, guys, and and, and in the Genesis account, he did not allow Abraham to kill his son. But in our story today, God would allow Jesus to be sacrificed. On our behalf. Now, for the sake of for the sake of our study and flow, um, you can turn there over to Matthew chapter twenty-seven. I just want to show you uh, Matthew's account of this. Matthew twenty-seven, and then we'll come back to John. Let me just read it. If you if you're not fast enough, Matthew twenty-seven, verse thirty-one. It says this: "And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own." Clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. This is exactly what John is saying. Okay? But what Matthew tells us is that there were a few other things that happened to my Jesus. And you go, what's that? They mocked him, guys. They mocked him. I should be the one being mocked. It was my sin that put him there. And they mocked him. And they took the robe off him and they took him away. Now they came out, and it says there was a man. Of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. And when he had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, listen, he would not drink. And they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Matthew's account, okay? This is the crucifixion. But John is going to go a little, bit, a little bit different, okay? So, so uh, again, let's look at the snapshots, and, and let's see what John says. So Jesus, back in John 19, so Jesus, bearing his cross, where did he go? He went out to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha notice where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side and Jesus in the center now before we go on here's what we need to understand right where did they crucify him they crucified him right out to the place a place of the skull Okay, it's called Golgotha. We know it is Mount Calvary. So Calvary can be translated skull, but there's Jesus, he's crucified. Now, here's what I want you to see. If you can just read through that, you go, yeah, they crucified him, amen. Let's get to the, but here's what I want you to see. The word of God is so amazing to us. Do you realize what it just said? It said, they crucified my Jesus, okay, with two others, with two others, right? Yeah. One on either side of him, and Jesus in the center. You would raise your question if you were in school, and you go, John, why did you write that? But what, what order does it really matter where they were crucified? Why would you say send one in the right, one on the left, Jesus in the center? Well, under the power of the Holy Spirit, John is writing this, and here's just an amazing reason. Why? Well, John simply says they killed Jesus right here. But remember, he's going to spend two chapters talking about the resurrection. So, What we've learned so far is Jesus is in the middle, and two others were killed that day, one to the right and one to the left. Well, Ben, why do you draw our attention to this? Well, here's why. Listen, because Pilate didn't realize that when he gave the orders, he gave the orders that Jesus should be crucified between two criminals. And although he didn't realize it, what he was doing was he was actually fulfilling prophecy. You go, what do you mean? Well, according to Isaiah 53, 12, 700 years before, Isaiah said that our Savior, that our Jesus was going to be crucified. Here's what the word says. He was going to be numbered with the transgressors, numbered with the transgressors, right? Pilate's just going, okay, crucify him, go, put him in the middle. And and Isaiah had already said he's going to be numbered with the transgressors. You guys know what I'm talking about? The transgressors. Now think about this for just a moment. When it means that our Savior was numbered with the transgressors, here's what it wants to do. It wants to show us the position he occupied as our substitute. As our substitute. In other words, we're the transgressors. And Isaiah said, he's going to be numbered. And so when you looked at him in the center, you see he wasn't over to the right, he was in the middle. He's like, oh, he's numbered with, He's numbered with he's numbered with me. Transgressors. I just like, wow. Wow. In other words, he he had taken the place, guys, that was due us. You go, well, what was the place? Well, guys, think about it, guys. It was the place of shame. It was a place of transgressors. It was a place of criminals. It was the place people that were condemned to die. That was our place. Do you get that? That was us. It's like you were in the middle. You were about to be crucified, and Jesus goes, wait, time out. I'll take their place. Stop, 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 stop. I know they're guilty. And you're going, you're saying, God, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. He goes, no, no, no. I'll take their place. I know you're guilty, but I'll be that substitute. That's exactly what he, he did right in the middle. You know, another reason, another reason, guys, that Jesus was in the middle is because he was showing us that he was the way, the truth, and the life and that no one came to the Father except through him. Why? Because you had one guy on this side going, hey, if you be the son of God... Save us. Save us all. Come on. What is wrong with you? And he didn't believe, did he? And on this side, he had another guy going, what is wrong with you? We did something wrong. He didn't do anything wrong, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. What was Jesus? Jesus is in the middle. And that's exactly what he does because you and I, there were a time when we were right here. We didn't believe. We didn't walk with God. We, didn't, we, we doubted him. We, we said, man, we don't want anything to do with God. And then Jesus, And then we, we moved in the middle, and then we were transported to this side, I believe. It's called being born again. That couldn't have happened if Jesus wasn't in the middle. So John, under the power of the Holy Spirit, writes this, right? And we're going, wow, that blows my mind. Jesus is in the middle. So now, anytime you look at a picture of the crucifixion, you see Jesus in the middle, you go... I know why, I know why, I know why. Well, let's take a brief look at what's going on, okay? So Jesus, okay? Now, here's what I want you to see. Passover, everybody with me? Passover, million of people, people coming in the road. Now, the Romans would not crucify on a hill. They wouldn't crucify on a hill way up high. They crucified actually about this high. This is the road. They would crucify about this high, so that everybody passing could see, and they could see what the crime was on top of the cross. So this, they were this way. You'll see pictures in movies that it's like, oh, it's a cross upon a hillside way up top. No, no. Romans said, don't mess with Rome, and this is, we'll tell you why. And it was real common. You could actually walk by Jesus and about this high, about this high right here. And this is, this is kind of the scene right there, okay? So there's Jesus. There he is. He's crucified, guys, between who? Two people, he's numbered with transgressions between somebody who doesn't believe and a believer right now. Can I get an amen? Verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Do you guys see that? Look at that. It was, where was Jesus crucified? Near the city. Back in the day, guys, you couldn't crucify a criminal inside the city walls. So he had to go out the Damascus gate outside the city. And that's why he says, listen, he was crucified where? Outside the city. So you know that. There's a place there in Israel that's called Golgotha. It's called Calvary. It's called Mount Calvary or Gordon's Tomb. And in the back, the mountain looks like a skull. Has two eyes and nose. I mean, it's like, and 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 there is a main road that goes right, right, right. There's a bus station there now, but there's, I mean, isn't that ironic, right? A bus station. Who rides the bus? Everybody. But that was where Jesus would be. Pilate writes something very interesting. He says this. What does he write? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And you go, yeah, no big deal. That's that's what he said. No, no, no. Notice what, what John says. John says it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Why? Why three? Why three? Why did not you just write it in Hebrew? Right? This is Passover. We're in Israel. This is Jerusalem Hebrew. He said he wrote it in three. Here's why. Okay? Here's why. You can jot this down. In Hebrew, Hebrew would actually, actually was written for the religious people. In Hebrew. All the people that were coming in for Passover were... Help me, church, they were religious because they had not really believed in Jesus yet. And they wrote it in Greek because the Greek people that came through, it would speak to them in their culture. So you have religion, you have culture, and then they had to write it in Latin because these are the Romans, and that would signify the law and the government. This is is the official crime you're being charged with. You go, well, what's the point? Think about this, guys. Think about this. When Pilate wrote that, he wanted to make sure that no matter what background you came from, you knew what Jesus was being executed for. And you go, well, Ben it said, Jesus, now there's king of the Jews. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm just going, wow. He was, he was executed for being king of the Jews. People would read that. And then in verse 21, as it goes on, it says, no, 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 the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write, king of the Jews. They're upset, aren't they? He said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate looks at him and he says, what I've written, I have written. I have written. The scene changes here as John pens this. Why? Look at verse 23, it says, then the soldiers... Who had crucified Jesus took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also a tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Who shall it be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Your attention, please think about this. This is going to blow your mind. This is going to blow your mind. Why? Because God is going to speak volumes in these verses. You go, how so? Okay, well, there's three things that really pop from this verse. Now, look at me for a minute, okay? You understand Jesus is crucified. There he is. He's in the middle. We know why. He's numbered with transgressors. But what's going down in the bottom is they've already done the deed. He's already been, the Bible says that Jesus is unrecognizable, but the Romans don't care. They're saying, what are we going to do with his clothes? And they take part of his clothes and they tear it into four pieces. There must have been four soldiers. But when it comes to the tunic, they said, let's just, let's just throw some dice. Let's see who gets it all. Now there's a reason and there is a reason. Well, let me give you the first one. Okay. Let me give you the first one. When we know in verse 23 that says the tunic, okay, the tunic is the undershirt that Jesus wore. It was without seeing and it was woven from the top in one piece. Here's what I want you to see. The tunic in one piece, it jumps out because it might be signifying completeness in jesus you go what do you mean there wasn't a whole lot of different seams it was one seam top to bottom you go why would you say that here's why if you look at your bible and you look at verse 23 it says then the soldiers when they had crucified jesus took his garments and made it four parts and each soldier a part, and also a tunic now the tunic was without seam woven from the top that's the same word that john implies when he says that we must be born from above And when we get born again, when we get born from above, and why is this so important, church? Because we want to make sure that we're not just Christian in name only. Because, I mean, that doesn't do us any good. We could walk around with our Christian t-shirts and our Christian bumper stickers, and we can, it doesn't mean we know Jesus. And so what Jesus says is that you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. And when you are born from above, that should signify completeness in your life. Your life should be complete. How so? Before you gave your life to Jesus, were you complete? No, you were a mess. We're all a mess. We're all a bunch of misfits, messed up, but we get born again, and all of a sudden, we're still a mess, but we're a complete mess. Because we have hope. We know where we're going. You guys tracking with me? You know what I'm saying? How many of you are a mess? I'm still a mess. I'm, still, I'm a mess, but I'm a complete man. That's exactly the tunic says we were a mess. But it signifies completeness. You're complete in Jesus. And so what did the soldiers do? Instead of going, let's tear it in four parts. They said, no, 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 no. Let's just make one. Let's keep it. We'll just throw lots. Whoever gets it gets the whole thing. Amazing. Reason number two. Reason number two is he says the reason they did that is because it was already prophesied in Psalm 22. Somebody already prophesied this. Psalm 22, verse 18 says, they divided my garments among them. And my clothing, they cast lots. Now, here's my. Now here's the point, right? The soldiers didn't read the scriptures. They didn't know what they were doing. But I wonder how many Jewish people stood there at the cross going, wait a minute, I read this in Psalm 22. I read this. This is, wait, what are you doing? Oh, well, we're casting lots. This is the Messiah. I wonder if they just didn't see it. I wonder if they just didn't see it. But he said that the that the prophecy would be fulfilled. So the reason they did that is that the prophecy would be fulfilled. Now, I'm going to give you a third reason. But I want to set the third reason up by saying this. The enemy's biggest tool in his toolbox towards you is to do one thing. You go, what's that? One of his biggest tools is to create doubt on who God is in your life. He wants to create doubt, okay? He wants to create doubt, and that's his biggest tool, right? You'll you'll be going through life and go, man, I'm serving Jesus, and something will happen. And what the enemy comes in, he goes, is there really God? And if God is God, how come he doesn't love you? And Why did he let this happen? How many of us know what we're talking about? That's his biggest tool is to, for us to, to doubt the word of God and to doubt who God is in our life. Case in point, yesterday, we went out to Grace Fellowship, and I met a fellow by the name of Tim, and Tim starts talking to me, and Tim tells me that he used to be a Satanist before he got saved. You're a Satanist, Really? Yeah, and he said, you know, before I didn't believe in God. I said, you not believe in God, but then you were a Satanist? Okay, well, tell me. And so I said, Tim, tell me your story. Tell me your story. What happened? How did you go from not believing in God to being a Satanist? He said, the problem was is that, now, now listen, see if you guys can relate. The problem was is that early in my life, somebody who represented the church, somebody who represented God, he said, my uncle, my uncle misrepresented who God was. And I turned at that point. Somebody we trust early in our life misrepresents God and because we don't understand and our faith is really, really shallow at that point. He said, I walked away from hiding. I didn't believe. I said, God would not allow. And guys, and, I mean, this is Tim, but that, that, his biggest tool happens all of our lives. It happens. Certain things happen to us in this ugly, awful world. And we go, if God is God, why did he allow that to happen? And what we do is we turn our back on God. And That's his biggest tool. His biggest tool is to get you to doubt the Bible. His biggest tool that goes, oh, yeah, well, Jesus was a good man. He died on the cross, but, you know, it wasn't God. Chill out. You know, the Religion has many options, man. Chill. But but when we read something like this in the Bible, and it, and it just... T- tingles and it runs chills up your spine. You go, man, Jesus was God. You go, how so? It's the word tunic. It's the tunic that Jesus wore. Why would John mention it? Well, you go, well, Ben, you said because it it offered completeness. And of course, it was because in Psalm 22, it was prophesied. Let me give you a third one that's going to send chills down your spine. You go, what's that? The mention of the garment, guys, tells us, listen, that Jesus was acting as the high priest. You go, what? Okay, your attention, please. Remember, the high priest at the Passover would be the one to sacrifice the lamb, okay? There was about 200, Cephas says there were about 200,000 lambs being sacrificed, If you recall in our study, they would sacrifice the lamb and the blood would run down the Kidron Valley. It'd be full of blood. And as Jesus walked over the Kidron Valley earlier in the day and he saw the blood, he would go, that's the the sacrificial blood that the high priest is doing. That's gonna be my blood in just a few short hours. It would be a huge reminder of that he was going to the cross. But the high priest was the only one who could sacrifice the lamb. You go, okay, go back to the tunic. Ooh, it's going to get good. You see, the high priest, he wore a garment, a tunic, at Passover. In fact, without the garment, the priest could not be fit to serve. Case in point, jot this down, Ezekiel 44 and 19. The garment is not the only thing that makes the priest fit to serve, but it is a must. Everybody got that, okay? Now, Exodus tells us, according to Exodus 39, 27, and they made coats, the word is coats, it's tunics, inside, of fine linen of woven work for Aaron and his sons. Who were Aaron and his sons? They were the high priest, okay? So they made a tunic, The tunic was one piece for the priest extended from the neck to the feet. Guys, remember, it was the closest piece of clothing to the skin, and the tunic was made of woven linen. There were no seams that the priest had. So the priest had to put it and pull it over his head. Guys, look at it again. Look at it again. Okay? When they, soldiers, had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they moved, right? Each soldier apart, they also took his tunic. His tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Guys, listen to me, jot this down. Jesus right here is both the lamb and the high priest who offers the lamb. He is acting as both. Who could do that? You see, the priest, the high priest in the Passover could either kill the lamb or he could be the lamb, but he couldn't be both. Only Jesus could be both. Only Jesus was going, I am acting as the high priest and I'm going to sacrifice myself based on the tunic. You're just like, wow. Well, it gets better. It gets better. Why? Why? What was the what was the hour that Jesus was about to be crucified? Sixth hour. You guys are awesome. Did you know? Let me just let me just throw this out you a little Jeopardy question. Can you guess what hour the high priest would begin to sacri- to to sacrifice the Passover lamb? The sixth hour. Don't miss it, guys. When you read the word of God, it wants to speak. Look, give me chills. It wants to speak to us. And when we just read it and we just read it and we check mark it, but we don't really dig into it, man, we miss it. Why? Because in verse 14, it said Jesus was crucified about the sixth hour. And we know that, that about the sixth hour, the high priest was up in the temple mount crucifying the lambs for the Passover and right out the city walls. The Lamb of God was being crucified sacrificed for our sin you see the Bible's real and you can't make this stuff up and what God wants to do is he wants to solidify your faith why because the word that John uses he employs he says he want you to believe I don't just want you to act like you're I don't want you to modify your behavior praise the Lord he says I want you to jump in with both feet I want you to believe because in believing then you'll have life and if you're here today and you go pastor I have no life it's we we'll check your belief are you all in are you all in right so the tunic and and so that just blew our mind but it goes on cuz we have to finish and it says in verse 25 and now they stood there by the cross and who's there jesus his mother what was jesus mother's name mary yeah some of you're like no, I'm not sure no it's mary then mary then uh mary's sisters there okay most commentators believe this is Salome, so this would be Aunt Salome, okay? So she's there. Then you have Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So you had three Marys at the crucifixion. Three Marys and Salome. So they're all there. They're all there. Now, the Bible mentions them, and again, we'll have to dig deeper in that. It says, and when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that? That's John. Standing there, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Your attention, please. Let me give you an observation and an application that I think we can use for today. You go, what's that? Here's Jesus on the cross. He's about to die, right? He's about to take his final breath. And he sees, the, he sees his mom. He sees his mom. If Jesus was a phony, I think seeing his mom at that point, he would have said, get me down, I'm just kidding, I'm just lying. Or, I'm sorry, mom, I made a mistake. Whatever it might be, but he doesn't. You know what he says? He looks at the disciple, he looks at John, he says, he says behold your son, mom, Behold your, you know, behold your son, and son, behold your mom. And from that point, John says, come and live with me. Now, here's the point I want to make. The point I want to make is God wants us guys to live in community. Okay, he wasn't sitting there looking and going, hey, where's James? Where's my other brothers? They should be here with mom right now. Oh, my brothers, they make me so mad. He goes, no, listen, the body of Christ, we should all be family. We should all be family. And we miss that, guys. We start drawing lines lines in the sand, and we miss that. We should be family no matter what. And family means sacrifice, does it not? Do you think it was easy for John to go, okay, now I got this, now I got my own mom, and I got, got Jesus' mom. Oh, God, where am I going to get food from? Shh, shh. No, she says, we're family, and it doesn't matter. And that's how we should be in the body of Christ, guys, to one another. And that's how we should be. We should be giving more than we're taking. We should, be, we should be the ones that are, that are bringing people into our homes, and we should be the ones that are buying groceries for people who need it. We should be that, not because, not because we want to put a check mark on us, or, hey, that's the church that... Moved. It's because that's what God has done for us, and we should be the ones that are givers, not takers. Why? We have it. We have it. But let God speak to you, and I see God doing an amazing thing. Why? Because he wants us to work in community, guys. He wants us to mark, work in community. Well, that's, he says, behold your mother. And from that hour, John took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all things that were accomplished, and the scripture might be fulfilled, what does he say, guys? Do you see that? He says, I thirst. I thirst. Why is that important real quick? Why is that important? Here's why. Listen, because there was a teaching going around that when Jesus walked on the earth, he was a man, but when he walked on the cross, when he got on the cross, he was God. But you know what this tells me? He was fully God and fully man. And he felt everything that you feel. And when he said, I thirst, it just, it just proved that he was human. He was human. He, he was a man. And for our sake, let's be honest, for our sake at times, we want to go, well, you know, Jesus, I mean, he died on the cross, but it wasn't that bad because he was God. No, he felt everything. That's where the word excruciating comes from, from a term that it was was so much pain. But I see that and I go, you know what? He was God and he's going to die as God, but he was man and he endured everything. You go, how does that help me? Listen, when you're in pain, Jesus knows. When you're struggling, God understands. When you're thirsty, you know that he understands. I'm thirsty, I'm parched. Yeah, I know, been there. You guys, but think about that. Think about that. When you are alone with God alone, and you go, God, does anyone understand? And your family doesn't understand, and your spouse doesn't understand, and your kids don't understand, and your church doesn't understand, guess who understands? You're Jesus. He says, I understand. I understand. I understand. Now, a vessel of, full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled the sponge with sour wine, put on hyssop. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And they put it to his mouth. Now, remember, Matthew said that, that he didn't drink. And so when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You guys feel the weight of this right now? This is the day God died. But I'm so glad it's not the end of the story. I'm so glad it's not the end. I mean, he died right here. and I mean, think about it. We have to close here, but I want you to ponder, guys, and the purpose and the implications of Jesus dying right before our eyes. You go, what's that? Well, number one, as our creator and king, he endured so much agonizing and excruciating death for a purpose. You go, what's that? I want you to ponder the purpose that he did that because he is alive and that he loves us. And that he loves us. Your Jesus just stood there, nailed to a cross. He looked at you and he said, It's finished. And he died, and he died because he loves you. Now, here's my thought. Listen, he is our king. Would you agree? Because, because I want to serve a king. I want to serve a king that died for me because every other king wants their subjects to die for him, but not our Jesus. Our Jesus is, no, 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 no. That's not how, it works in the, it's not how it works in heaven. This is how it works. They need a savior. <coughs> They're a mess. They're a wreck. I'll die for them. Why did he die for us, guys? He died to prove that he loves you. He loves you. The devil comes in and he says, hey, uh, I'm gonna create doubt. I'm gonna create doubt. God doesn't love you. No, you look at this passage and you go, no, he loves me. He loves me. Before I get to the second one, listen, guys. There are times in our lives that we all doubt And we ask the question, does God really love me? And when you do that, think about this. I know it's commonplace. I know it's cliche. But next time you doubt and you say, does God really love me? Remember, how much do you love me, God? He said, he opened his arms this wide. He says, I love you this much. And I'm not asking you to jump through any hoops. I'm not asking you to cut your hair. I'm not asking you to do. What I'm asking you to do is believe. And if you'll just believe and you're born again, I'll do a work in your life that'll be phenomenal. And I'll take you places that you've never seen, but you've got to believe. You've got to believe. Here's why. Point number two that we need to ponder. Point number two that we need to ponder. Check it out. What the death of God actually tells us about ourselves. You go, what's that? Well, I want to take a closer look. See, there are folks that are inclined to think themselves as victims rather than offenders. And so when this happens, they conclude that Jesus died on the cross was for others more evil than themselves. Oh, Jesus died, but He died for you. He died for you, He didn't I? I'm okay. Listen, I grew up in West Texas, whatever it might be. No, 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 no. Listen, that's the victim, and you gotta, you gotta have the offender mentality. You go, what does that mean? Don't respond as a victim. Respond as an offender. It was me that put him on the tree. It was my sin. It was my sins. Guys, we must all come to understand that Jesus died not for someone else's sin so you don't be nudging your husband, nudging, that was for you, man. That was a good message for you. No, 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 we need to understand Jesus died for your sin, for your sin. Guys, listen, if anyone wants to be included in Christ's death, he must admit In God's eyes, that we're broken, we're beaten, we're bruised by the same sin as everyone else. Here's my question to you There's Jesus. And he's on the cross. Everybody close your eyes and imagine this. He's on the cross. And you got one to the right, and you got one to the left. And Jesus just died. And the Bible says that he was unrecognizable, but you know it's Jesus. And you've come to the place in your life where you said, that was me. He died for me. So my question to you is, is if Jesus died for you, are you going to be willing to live for him? How many of you are willing to go, I am going to live for him today for the rest of my life? That's all that God wants, right? He wants you to surrender completely and say, I, I'm not going to play church anymore. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to live for him. Amen. God loves you. I know he does because I read it today. Listen, listen. I didn't say this in first service. Maybe it's for somebody here in second. That's the gospel message. Paul repeats that in Corinthians that Jesus died, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. On the third day, he resurrected according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Can I get an amen? But what gospel are you? What gospel are you taking? You go. What do you mean? Well, I believe we have two gospels. You go. What do you mean? What do you mean? I think we have a gospel of that's well, called therapeutic moral deism. And therapeutic moral deism is we take we open the pain and say the gospel and it makes us feel good and we want to feel good about ourselves and that's the gospel. And what it, what it does is it sort, of, it sort of numbs the pain a little bit, it doesn't take it away, it just it makes me feel okay. And you have the gospel and you go, this is the gospel, this is what I take. But you still have the condition. But the gospel that we talked about today is you taking the gospel cap off, you taking it and your life is changed and whatever was in you is now healed, you are now complete. And I think too many people are taking the gospel of thor- therapeutic. It's therapy. Oh, I feel good, moral. I'm going to do what's right. This is what I want to do for God. Instead of going, I want, the, I want the unadulterated, give me the gospel. I want my life to change. I want my heart broken before God. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live for him. Would you pray with me, church? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for dying on the cross. This is the day God died. And Lord, we promise, God, I pray that every one of us in this room would promise to live for you. But Lord, there might be somebody here who's feeling the way of this teaching and the way of your Holy Spirit, and your Holy Spirit is knocking on their heart. And your Holy Spirit is saying, listen, you need to be right with me. I brought you here to hear this message. You need to be right. And you know what you need to do you need to you need to surrender your life once and for all, as much as I'd love you to come to this church, coming to church is not going to help you as much as surrendering your life to Jesus this morning. Well, we want you to come to church, and we'll walk with you, but you need to make sure that you're surrendered to God once and for all. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, how many of you would say Pastor Ben?" I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to give my life once and for all to Him. I'm going to follow Him. And all you have to do right now is lift up your hand. Well, Pastor, why do I have to lift up my hand? Because I want God to see your heart. If you're serious about it and you're not in a right relationship with God, then today, this morning is yours. It all belongs to you. Jesus died for you and He loves you and He's got a plan for your life, but you've got to surrender. You've got to come to Him. And without Him, guys... You're not going to walk in his plan. But if today, if you'll surrender, he's got a great plan for your life. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, would you just lift up your hand If you say, Pastor, would you just pray for me? I want to give my life once and for all. I want to surrender. I want to follow him. I purpose to follow him the rest of my life. Would you do that right now? If you want me to acknowledge and pray for you, just lift up your hand and say, Pastor, right now, pray for me. Would you do that? Anyone here? Anyone here? Lord, I thank you for your great love today. I thank you for dying on the cross. I look forward to your beautiful resurrection. As we know, God's not dead. He's
0: he's alive.